this morning in the book of Romans, this afternoon, in the book of Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 1, and I want to read verses 8 through 13, Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 13. Romans chapter 1, beginning at verse 8. Wherever they're going, Lord, let them get their own time and to address whatever has to be addressed and nothing ill will take place. Romans chapter 1, verse 8. Let me say first that I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith in him is being talked about all over the world. God knows how often I pray for you, day and night, I bring you in your needs and prayer to God, whom I serve with all my heart by spreading the good news about his son. One of the things I always pray for is the opportunity, God willing, to come at last to see you. For I long to visit you so I can bring you some spiritual gift that will help you grow strong in the Lord. When we get together, I want to encourage you in your faith, but I also want to be encouraged by yours. I want you to know, dear brother and sisters, that I planned many times to visit you, but I was prevented until now. I want to work among you and see spiritual fruit, just as I have seen among other Gentiles. Amen. You may be seated. Concentrating on verse 12 for our text this afternoon, when we get together, I want to encourage you in your faith, but I also want to be encouraged by yours. I need a push. That's the title of the text I want to deal with this morning. I need a push. Both Christians and non-Christians alike are looking for, on a daily basis, encouragement. Some are more stronger than others and are able to encourage themselves at the quicker pace than others can find in themselves. But even such a person has a base, has a reservoir from which they draw their strength. In fact, the word stimulation has been birthed from a number of sources if you think about it. An advantage of a person who has wide observation, which just simply means that they learn from a wide spread of sources. One allows themselves to expand in their mind comprehension, learns various modes of encouragement from different angles of life. For example, you can learn a lot about endurance, about perseverance, about encouraging one another if you study the behavior of the ant. For the ant works in unison with another, and the ant works at such a pace that one never outruns the other, but they are managed to carry a heavy load and carry each other's load, teaching us, if you watch them, how to prepare for a rainy day. You can learn a lot by watching their work ethic, but even more so, you can learn a lot by learning tenacity, learning how to fight, learning how to overcome no matter how strong, or should I say how small, or even how weak you may think you are when you watch the behavior of a wolverine or a badger. You may not know this, 
but the one creature who can actually destroy a cobra is a badger. A badger not only is laced with an antibiotic in its own body that resists the cobra's venom, but the badger is quick enough and sharp enough to outmaneuver the cobra in its striking mode. Watch the tenacity of the badger and you'll recognize even a badger will fight a lion. Now you know and I know that the lion can quickly overcome the badger. But the lion actually is intimidated by the badger mainly because its small size arguably in its hissing mode sends an interesting hearing vibration to the lion that causes a moment of confusion, hesitancy, and the lion has to try to figure out what is this small object that's driving me crazy. It gives the badger long enough time to get out of distance from the lion and to get away to safety. We can learn how to fight if you can catch a hold of the tenacity that's within the badger and the wolverine. You also can learn how to be intimidating by watching the eye focus of the lion, of the tiger. Just simply watch how they eye their prey. Slowly, divinely design their feet with pads underneath so they can actually walk on grass and never be heard with the king listening senses of an antelope, of the gazelle, they can move so quietly that you'll never know that they're sneaking up on you. In fact, the tiger and particularly the jaguar, because they don't possess speed, really rest their strength upon being able to catch you by surprise we can learn from watching the eyes of those kingdom mammals that we ourselves can stare trouble down with our eyesight and not become intimidated because it's larger than we are but stay focused on being victorious when looking at the object. We also can learn how to be strong and how to stay stable by understanding and learning what makes a tree so strong. It's not just the strength of its trunk, but its trunk is connected to something underneath. Underneath is the incredible wiring of roots that gains its own credibility and strength in the soil that yet draws from its soil nutrients that sends back up to the trunk back out to the branches that ends up bearing the kind of fruit that it was designed to bear. We can learn a lot by understanding where our roots are. We can learn a lot by recognizing that we have ethnic roots deeply rooted in a people who have perseverance, in a people who have endurance, in a people who are intelligent, in a people who are able to do far beyond what you can think or even ask at their hand. We would, we would be well to understand that we have roots that run deep in a spiritual tree that enable us to know that through Christ and in Christ, we are more than conquerors because we draw strength out of a reservoir that can't be seen with the natural eye. But inside of us, underneath us, is a reservoir that gives us stability to stand like a tree, says Psalm 1, planted by the rivers of water. But we also can learn a great deal by simply sitting and observing a chair. We can learn how to be quite stable individuals recognize that we have to learn to live a balanced life when you look at a chair. Three legs just won't work. You can sit in a chair and try as best as you can to stabilize it with three legs and you very well could be successful at doing so even at a duration. 
but it's such an awkward sitting when you're shifting all of your weight onto the three legs hoping that those three will hold you up. But understanding how you need all four legs to remain stable, living a balanced life, giving us the kind of stability that we need is a step in the right direction that helps us recognize we can learn a great deal if we stretch our minds and allow ourselves to learn from different reservoirs in life. In the book of Acts chapter 13, when Paul and some of the others had come into the town, they had came to the synagogue and listening to the reading of the book of Moses, says the text. The priest or the overseer of the synagogue stood and looked at Paul and said, brethren, if you have any word of encouragement, come and share it now. Because the people who are in this synagogue, who are listening to the reading of this word, not only need to hear this word, but someone needs to expound upon this word that they may understand what the word meaning. In other words, God says to us that if I've given you and he has words of life, I want you to carry those words of life wherever you go and share them that someone else who feel like they are losing life will then begin after hearing what you have to say from the word of life, begin then to gain life. Gain life to a point where they know now there is still hope. Gain life to a point where rather than to throw in the towel, they gird up themselves, they position themselves, they dig in their heels, and they fight more because they know they are going to be victorious because of the word of life that they've heard from you and I. That kind of spirit is what I identify as encouragement that is pushed by motivation. Paul's motive in the writing to the letter to the Romans says a lot to us. It says a lot to us in reference to questioning what drives us. Why do we do what we do? And what's the motivation that causes us to share in the good news of Christ? In other words, Paul says that the motives that I'm expressing reveals the kind of inspiration of my actions. Because Paul's motives made him learn more than anything else that a part of his calling is to be an encourager is to encourage people in their journey. Not to think about himself first, but to be an encourager that he may bless others or that he may push them when they're not being pushed. That he may be the voice that causes them to recognize you can't stay where you are, but you must find a way to move forward in the name of the Lord. Stagnation is not a part of God's program, but instead, God specializes in consistency in moving forward. Moving forward because the kingdom of God is ever being unveiled unto us, and by it being unveiled unto us, there is something new that we're discovering about the glory of God each and every day. And Jeremiah, as he writes in Lamentations chapter 3, he says to us, morning by morning, new mercies we see. In other words, you've got to push to the next morning so you can witness the new mercy that God has in store that you may have missed on the previous day. You only missed it because, actually you didn't miss it, you didn't experience it because perhaps it wasn't the day for which you need to experience it. It was the next day that you needed it the most because that's when God knew you were right for being encouraged in the manner in which you were. So we found out this morning in these first uh, verse 8 through 13 in reading Romans chapter 1 that Paul 
had the motivation to encourage these Roman Christians and he did so by first being intentional. He was intentional in making sure to let them know that he wanted to come to them, wanted to come that they might see who he was because he had never seen them before. He had never been to the church before. He didn't establish the church, but there was something about hearing their testimony that urged his own desire to come and see them. And so he was intentional on many different occasions to come and see, but something always got in the way. Because the text doesn't say, as it did in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, that every time he wanted to go to the Thessalonians, Satan got in the way. I am led to believe that here in Romans chapter 1, every time Paul wanted to go to see them in Rome, not Satan, but God set up roadblocks to make sure that he wouldn't go prematurely. In other words, God had a timing that Paul would get to Rome because if he got there too early, he may have missed the purpose in which God had designed for him to be there. Sometimes God delays our desire to get to a point in place because it's not the time for us to be there. As much as we desire to get there, God sets up roadblocks because of our determination to get there and God says, I don't want you to go there right now because God is working behind the scene where we cannot see. He's working all things together for the good. I'm reminded of a young lady who left this area and went to another part of the state and for a long time could not find a job. Wanted to come back but couldn't find a job. But that person didn't know that God had a job lined up but it just wasn't the timing to which we desire for that moment to take place. Now we kind of wonder, God, if you don't do it now, what's going to happen to what I have to do in terms of obligations? God says, you got to trust me when you can't trace me. You got to be willing to believe that I'm able to provide for you. Even when you think that there's no provision, God makes a way out of no way. It is to say, years later, God removed the roadblocks and opened up the door. Because what God is doing is saying, I didn't want you back here now, but I had a time and a purpose that later you would return back to the area and continue to do and be blessed by me. God moves on us to be intentional in what we do in terms of encouraging someone else. Every time I saw this young lady, I just kept saying, hang in there, keep believing, keep trusting keep waiting God's got it God's got it he's gonna open it up for you you just gotta in the words of Job you gotta wait until your change comes and when God gets ready he'll bring it about so Paul said in verse 8 9 and 10 that he is intentional about coming to see these Christians in Rome but then he says I'm not only intentional but I want to do it because I want a relationship with you he makes that clear in verse 11 where he says, I long to visit you so I can impart to you a spiritual gift. I want to give you what I have. More importantly, I want to be able to share what I have that we might benefit from each other's desire. In other words, I want to be relational. I want to just not know you by way of reputation. I want to know you by way of relationship. And sometimes God connects us to people in congregational life, in employment life, in neighborhoods, in social settings, people that we probably wouldn't think would be a part of our circle. Let me warn you, if all your friends are Christians, you might want to be wary of that. No, that's not a defilement of Christianity. But remember when I told you about the chair? That keeps your life balanced. It allows me to see that I need another perspective sometimes other than the Christian perspective. Why? Because sometimes our theology is pie in the sky and it doesn't register in reality. I need someone to wake me up from time to time to remind me of where I am. And what that does is pushes me to remember that I not only have to have faith, 
but faith without works is dead. So Paul said, I got faith. Obviously, my faith is being encouraged by hearing about your faith, but I want to come and work with you because seeing you in action will allow my faith to grow and you seeing me in action will allow your faith to grow. See what he says in verse 12? I long that I might be with you so that I can grow from your faith, but I also want you to grow from my faith. So we're talking about being intentional. We're talking about being relational. We're talking about partnership. That's the third thing Paul said we learned this morning. Partnership. Paul says, I want to be connected to you because I know when we work together, more can be accomplished with two than it can with one. The writer of Ecclesiastes says that when you take a cord, you can't get a cord with strength with one strand, but you need a couple of three strands, bring them together, and it becomes extremely strong. Let me run you back to my childhood days. My grandmama never beat you with one switch. No, no, you never got one. One is flimsy. It has no strength. It has no stability. It didn't have much endurance. And if you have a hard, thick hide, it won't even phase you. But when she plaits two or three of them together, and when she strikes, have you ever noticed it didn't take much for her to strike? Because when you because three means strength. There's a partnership going on in the three, which reminds us, says the Bible, if one can put to flight a thousand, two, ten thousand. In other words, we talk about an army, we might can defeat a thousand with one, but when we join forces with another and another, Paul says that's how you become more than a conqueror because you are victorious in numbers. That's why James says you ought to get you a prayer partner. You ought to let somebody else know what's going on in your life because you need encouragement when life is at its darkest moments. But here's our challenge and here's where we go awry. We think that it's best if I keep it to myself and don't tell nobody what I'm going through. Here's one of our, my mythical defenses because don't nobody understand what I'm going through. Well, don't you realize you're not the first to go through what you're going through? And maybe I have not personally experienced what you're going through, but I know this, if you and I partner and believe in terms of faith together that whatever it is that's putting the squeeze on your life, we pray God's strength that you will persevere and come through, and you will. All I need to know is that we can be encouragers to one another because when we join together in partnership, great things can happen unto us. Then Paul says, I want us to get together so we can experience discipleship. Look at verse 13. He says in verse 13, I, I, I want you to know that I planned many times to visit you, but I was prevented until now. But I want to work with you so that we can see among you spiritual fruit. In other words, what I'm most interested in is seeing how you're going to grow in the kingdom of God. I, I want to see what's in your life. Here's translation for us, and then I'm done. What Paul says to us by way of being an encourager, of being a stimulator, is now causing us to ask the question, what kind of spirit is in us? What's our motivation, as I said before, for why we do what we do. Am I doing it really because I want to do it for the kingdom of God? Or am I doing it because I got some other motive? Because people serve the Lord for many different motives. Some serve out of legalistic effort, which just simply means they believe they can earn their salvation and earn 
God's favor. Some serve the Lord for fear, fear that they will lose their salvation and fear that they will fall out of favor with God. Some serve like Diotrephes in 3 John 9 because they like the prestige of a position. Diotrephes wanted to be recognized as a leader because he knew that brought with it some sense of a reputation. Some people just like to be in a space because it gives them a name. More importantly, it gives them a title. Y'all know about that, don't you? We do that very well in the Baptist church. A title. Give me a title. Some serve to gain ecclesiastical positions what they think to be the power of the Lord over those to whom they've been given to care. In other words, they like to serve so they can feel like they're lording over somebody else. That you can't move unless I give you the stamp of approval. Some serve because of peer pressure. Peer pressure to conform to a certain human standard in reference to religious activities, mainly by someone else, i.e., their parents. Children get this pretty repeatedly. They are forced to see a perspective of their religion like their parents, not realizing parents that your child may see God through a different set of lenses. You live now in a culture that provides multiple lenses. Unfortunately for us, we might argue, it's not unfortunate to me, as an academician, it's certainly not unfortunate to me because I think all the more lenses, all the more better because it allows me to see how multiplicit God really is. So in other words, God cannot just be argued in one direction or as one particular, but when you look at the vastness of who God is, God can be understood from many different angles. But motives, you think about this, is really only captivated by our external behavior. Shows how orthodox we are, how helpful we might be. But is that the real motive, says Paul? 1 Corinthians 10 and 31, Paul says, whatever you do, make sure you do it for the glory of God and not for your own self-satisfaction. That went right over your head. It went right over your head. See, you, you, you don't want to hear that because now it shifts the priority. I'm not the central purpose or focus after all. It's for the glory of God. So now I've got to look at my own spirit on the inside. Why am I being nice? Why am I being loving, caring? Why am I really making this phone call? Out of obligation or out of care? Why am I really trying to come see you? Obligation? Religiosity? Or do I really have a deep concern in my heart because God has something to say through me to you? I'm going to give you a quick outline and then I'm done. Watch this. Six things. We're going to be done. Watch how fast I do this. Six things. Follow me in the Bible. Paul says, look at your spirit. Because your spirit is going to determine what kind of motivation you have. If your spirit is to serve God, then there's a couple things that ought to be seen. Look at verse 8. Number one, you should have a thankful spirit. Look what he says. Let me say first that I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith in him is being talked about all over the world. A thankful spirit says... You know, when I look at you and when I relate to you, I feel blessed that you're blessed. In other words, I'm happy the way God is working in your life. Let me encourage you, whatever you're doing, keep doing it because God is blessing you. And I want you to know I am thankful to the Lord that I've been introduced to who you are. Now, let me ask you this question. How many of us can look at each other and say, I'm grateful that God introduced you to me? and that God introduced me to you. How many of us are actually thankful when we look at someone else's life, when they're blessed, when they're being used of God, 
when their ministry is expanding, can you be thankful for someone else being blessed when it's not you at the center of the blessing? The motive of your spirit has to be examined, says Paul. But look at verse 9. Not only must I have a thankful spirit, but look at verse 9. I need to have a concerned spirit. Look what he says. God knows how often I pray for you Day and night I bring you and your needs in prayer to God whom I serve with all of my heart. Listen to that. I'm concerned. Why am I concerned? I'm concerned because whatever happens to you, it may not physically happen to me, but spiritually it should happen to me. That's what concern means. I'm concerned if it ails your spirit, then it agitates mine as well because something is causing an imbalance in your life. That's why we love to have friends. That's why we call them best friends because there's that generally some one person who seems to link with my soul and who has a concern about every dimension of my life so much so that whenever something is wrong with me, I never have to tell them. They can hear it in my voice. They can see it in my countenance. They can see it in my behavior. They recognize right then something is not right. And Paul says, even though I've never seen you, I'm praying for you day and night because I have a concern for you. Watch this. When someone says to us, pray for me, do we really pray for them? Or do we say a prayer right then because we know later on we're going to forget about praying for them and it never happens? Or do we actually make a mental note that I need to pray for so-and-so tonight when I'm in prayer because I got a concern about their soul? Something will happen to us in this community, in this community, when we become concerned about each other. Not nosy, concern. There's a difference. Being nosy means that you're trying to acquire information for your own self-gratification. But being concerned, I want to acquire information because there is a healing that needs to take place in this life and I'm going to trust God that I am going to be the vessel to which the bomb is going to flow through to heal are you concerned Paulson says verse 9 we need a concerned spirit but look at verse 10 I need a willing spirit I need a willing spirit that's committed and submissive to God in verse 9 in the concerned spirit I want to make sure I highlight this for you when he says I serve God with all my heart I serve is a single word in the Greek. And here's what it means. I serve, but I worship. I worship God by serving you. Did you get that? That's deep. I know it's deep. Listen to it. I worship God. I adore God by serving you. That's the reason why Paul is trying to admonish them. I want to come and serve you because in serving you, that's my demonstration of worship. Some people get satisfaction, particularly a person, let's just say, who has the gift of helps. Worship service may not drive them like it drives somebody else. But when they find somebody in the congregation that has a need, it drives them to get to that person who has the need and they work tirelessly to help that person find rectification for the need. They are in return worshiping God through their service. So you may not see them saying amen by raising the hand, but when the task is completed, they are more than celebrating God because they believe God has used them to bring about a healing in someone's life because they have a concerned spirit but also they have a submissive spirit see verse 10 particularly in clause B of verse 10 they have a submissive spirit one of the things says Paul I always pray for is the 
opportunity, God willing, to come and see you. They have a submissive spirit. Now that says, God, I don't know what your timing is, but I'm committed to whenever you open that door. Now you want to see something difficult, have a desire to do something and get ahead of God. Put the cart before the horse and you'll come to realize the, the cart is extremely difficult to move. And that's because God is saying you're getting ahead of me and you're trying to do what only I can do. Let me do what I do and you stay in your lane and wait until I open the door. You want to see that really played out? Just read the book of Numbers all by itself. You watch God take Israel, which should have been a 14-day journey, turns into a 38-year journey because they wanted to get ahead of God. In fact, every time in the previous, read the book of Exodus, every time previously that God reigns out in their life, they have the audacity and the nerve to not express appreciation, gratitude to God, but instead complain. We don't have no water. You should have left us in Egypt, Moses. We don't have no bread. You should have left us in Egypt, Moses. We just can't make it out here. You should have left us in Egypt, Moses. Never, never, I don't care how barren your provision is, never want to go back from where you came from. The encouragement is, is to listen to God right where you are, give you what you know that you need, but to watch God in the very context of a submissive and willing spirit work it out through you, and every time they complain, Moses would go back to God and says, your people, your people. And read the text closely, read through the book of Numbers, God would turn around and say, no, your people. I gave them to you to lead them, to help them recognize submissiveness is what you need. I want to do it because God wants me to do it. And if you don't think that's true, just read the closing chapters of Deuteronomy and Moses misses out on the Canaan experience of the promised land because he got ahead of God when they were providing water in the wilderness. He struck the rock with a bit of anger and he got ahead of God, not remembering how God, or should I say not deciding to submit to how God led him to handle the rock. There's a reason why there's a rock in your life. And the rock is there because God says it helps me teach you how to be submissive to my direction. And that's why when you get thirsty, I try to tell you how to, Work with the rock so that water can come out in the abundance for your provision. How submissive are you to the direction of God? Look at verse 11. A willing spirit, but a loving spirit. Loving spirit. I long to see you. I long to visit you so I can bring you some spiritual gift that will help you grow strong in the Lord. Paul says, I want to impart a gift that may be established in you that growth becomes your motive. Do you really want to see somebody else grow? That's a big question. Do you really want to see someone else grow? What do you do when you're not the principal person. When the crowd and the excitement ain't about you. When your name is not called at the banquet. 
What do you do when no one asks you to be a part of the event? Do you still give your hands? Do you still love? Do you still have a loving spirit, says Paul? Are you still willing to impart your gift into the context? Boy, y'all done got quite a minute. I'm going to hit on the right street now, boy. Look what he says. I, I want to give you some spiritual gift that will help you grow strong in the Lord. You know, I could give you, and y'all might find this hard to believe, I could give you a 10-minute sermon and be out of here. Some of y'all saying, that would be great. <laughs> I can see y'all now. In fact, right now would be a good time to start that pass. I mean, I got something else to do. But I'd be cheating you. Now, for those of you who say it don't take as long to preach as I preach, do you preach? Do you preach? That's like me going into a woman's kitchen, her, a kitchen, and telling her, it don't take that long to do what you're doing. Do you cook? I'm amazed at people who say that if the sermon is 40 minutes long, it's too long. But if the concert is three hours long, shoot, that won't long enough. In church, we've lost discernment. We've, we've wavered to the point where we now side with entertainment and push aside empowerment. So if the preacher preaches 40 minutes, we think that's long. That's not long at all. I'm here to tell you, I spend 40 minutes telling you on Sunday what comes out of 30 plus hours during the week. That's because I'm not going to cheat you when I stand here because my number one job is to grow you. I mean, I done preached enough from this pulpit. I ain't bragging, but I done preached enough where your life should be way up here in kingdom development if you took to heart the principles that I gave you. But most of you so caught up in the time that you miss the truth and by missing the truth you get taken over by time and as a result when the time expires for blessing to be in your circle then you want to come call and want to know what the truth really is when if you would sit and listen when I'm telling you you would catch it right then I tell everybody you can't preach no sermon in 10 minutes you're not preaching a sermon now, those of you who've listened to me these 20 years, you know it takes me 15 minutes just to do an introduction. Because I love you so much that I want to make sure I drop whatever I have to drop to you that you can grow. That's why I take a long time to preach to you. I don't entertain you. I'm not here to entertain you. I'm here to empower you. And you can't get empowerment in 20 minutes. In fact, it might take you 10 years to get empowerment. Because growth takes time. And with such a microwave, pop it in, pop it out mentality in terms of society that we've even translated that into church. Preach, pastor. I know you've got... I know that's what they that's what they, they want. They want you to have church in 10 minutes. 10 minutes. You want the choir to sing, the deacon to pray, the pastor to preach, the offering taken all in 10 minutes. Oh, and we want you to shout us for five. My concern about shouting you every Sunday, some folk ask why you don't sing more often. Well, first of all, singing is not my gift. I'm not a singer. I'm a teacher. That's my anointing. That's my calling. I know that. I don't have a question about that. So I do what I do. It's people like Exxon to get me stuck into thinking I can sing every now and then. I throw a song out there. But my calling is teaching scripture. The thing about it is, if you can't get happy over the teaching of the word, 
then me doing antics, if that's going to make you happy, that's not authentic Christianity. So if you wait for me to holler, you know you're not going to hear me holler. Because for me, your soul, your soul, Zion, listen to me, your soul is too expensive for me to risk entertaining it that you might only get inspiration and not get instruction. So Paul says, you need a humble spirit. When I drive home on Sunday evenings, I always think about the sermon. I always think about what happened in worship. And my flesh says, you should have shouted them. You should have took them over the edge a little bit. You should have got them excited. You should have threw a song out there. You should have got the church all riled up. But my spirit says, did you preach the word? Did you tell them what thus says the Lord? And when I say, yep, my spirit says, well done. Let's go to our next destination. Do you get what I'm saying? You, 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 you've got to be willing to understand the importance, says Paul, of imparting something in somebody's life. That's my loving spirit. One more, verse 12, humble spirit. Verse 12 is a humble thing. Why? I want to be encouraged by you, but I want to also encourage you in your faith. Watch this. Because I don't want to be the only one blessed in this equation. I want you blessed. And there's something about you that blesses me. And I pray that something in reference to what I say blesses you. This is a dialogical thing. It's, it's back and forth. It comes to both of us. It's two-way. It's two-way. You bless me and I bless you, says Paul. It's a blessing both ways. Because that's what church is. Because I'm going to say this and then I'm done. Sometimes when we come, you help me lift the burden from my shoulders. You don't know it, but seeing your face, seeing your expressions. One day, if you're bold enough, ask me, can you sit here and watch the people there? Just, just ask me one day. Let's swap places. Wanna know why? <laughs> ask these people in the choir, they'll tell you. Because looking at you, Sometimes it's hard to get inspiration and encouragement. So you figure this way. This is how we look at it. Okay, so they've rehearsed during the week. How many times they rehearse? Well, that's their job, right? That's why they're in the choir, right? To, to, to rehearse and get themselves prepared for Sunday morning worship, which is their assigned Sunday. In this instance, first Sunday. Right? Wrong. Wrong. There's a reason why they work hard in the rehearsal. Because you are in their minds and somehow they want to make sure that as they're blessed in learning the song, you're blessed in receiving the song. And when you're blessed in receiving the song, you bless them back by looking at them and saying, thank you for giving me the song. But when they look at you and you look like this, That's that spiritual thing we do. I'm not even a choir member. I can tell you when they go home, they be telling themselves, man, they made me work hard for them 10, 15 minutes. Am I right? I know I'm right about it. You want to know how I know? Because you make me work hard for these 30, 40 minutes that I'm standing here. That's how I know. Verse 13 is a fruitful spirit. It's wrapped in one word. 
I want to work among you and to see your spiritual fruit just as I saw in other Gentiles. Paul says, I want to see in you some fruit, some fruit. Now, I got to drop this on you. Fruit in the New Testament is defined in three different ways. The first way is metaphorical. So when you read Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, 23, 24, I think it is, it talks about the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, kindness, etc., etc. That's the fruit that comes out of a growing, developing spiritual person who's maturing. But there's a second way in which it talks. Fruit also refers to action. If you take that same book, Romans chapter 6, and go to verse 22, I think it is. Listen to what the word of God says, Romans 6 and 22. Talking about fruit. Listen to what it says. But now you are free from the power of sin and have become slaves of God. Now you do those things that lead to a holy holy life, a life of holiness, and result in eternal life. In other words, now your fruit says, my action is speaking louder than my words. So my actions are leading me to a growing life. So it's also 2 Corinthians 5.17. So the old things, unfortunately in the English translation, the uh, verb is in the past tense, and it's not in the past tense in the Greek. It's in the present tense. They are passing away. Now, how do I know that? Because you still do some stuff you did before you got saved. Oh, y'all going to do that? Y'all going to act like that on me? This what we're going to do? This how we're going to do this? You going to try to make me think? That everything, everything, everything you did in your previous life, you don't do anymore. This is what we're going to do. You're going to try to make me think that you ain't still working on some stuff in your life, some baggage that you're still trying to get hold of, some habits that you're still trying to break. You're you going to make me think that I don't know. You're trying to make me think I'm crazy. I ain't crazy. I know exactly what's happening in your life. And that's what he means here. But old things are passing. Every day I'm trying to get rid of more and more baggage. And can I get a witness? It's a fight. Some of that stuff is on me so bad that it's a fight. But I'm still fighting it. I'm still working at it. I'm still trying to break that habit. But it's a fight. But I'm gaining fruit. That, that's what he means. That's another way of looking at this text. I'm gaining fruit. Then there's a third way. Addition. If you go to Romans 16, chapter 16, verse 5, he talks about a single person, a single person that helps us recognize, uh, as a, not as a metaphor per se, but as a person uh, who's been added to the church as a first fruit. Romans 16 and verse 5 says, Also, give my greetings to the church that meets in their home. Greet my dear friend Eponidas. He was the first person from the providence of Asia to become a follower of Christ. Now the word first person is really translated first fruit. That means the seed that we planted in Asia Minor, he was the first convert. In other words, Paul says, you think about fruit, think about the first fruit that God gave you in your conversion. That's how you know you're growing because you're still holding on to that first fruit. Now, what's the reward? Verse 13 is a reward. It's the reward because that means that God is adding to my life. Addition. I'm being fruitful because I'm growing. I'm adding to my life. More love. More strength. More patience. More encouragement. More peace. More harmony. More hope more power, more endurance. 
God is adding every day, every day. Hebrews 13, Hebrews 3 and 13 says to us, make sure we exhort each other, encourage each other day after day, every single day because we've got to be bearing fruit, growing, 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 growing. In other words, I need a push and I need it from you and you need it from me. And if we did that, we would change Greater Little Zion Baptist Church overnight. Older people fear millennials pushing us out. Not pushing us out. As old folks say, read through the lines. We're screaming for you to push us and help us by revealing to us the revelation that you've gotten all those years. Do you get what I'm saying? They're simply saying, share with us what you know. But then the young folk are also saying, if you share with us, We'll show you there's a new way of doing it that's far more fruitful, more progressive. We can get there quicker, less manual labor. We got to work on fellowship because we, we so outsource stuff now that we miss, we miss the fellowship. You know, in the old church, we used to do everything. Everything. There was no such thing as we're going to have picnic, we're going to have church anniversary, and the sisters didn't cook. Don't, don't y'all stone me. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just making a point. I mentioned that to somebody. I said, ain't nobody cooking now. That's, that's too bad. We, that day is gone. I got it. I got it. I'm just telling you, when we did that, it created a camaraderie among us, and there was an expectation I mean, I, I ain't going to lie to you. I'm done, y'all. We're we going home right here because I ain't got hungry again now. I ain't going to lie to y'all. I went to some church events because I knew so-and-so was cooking X, Y, Z, and I wanted to make sure I got my share of it. And I'd go there and say, oh, I've been waiting for this all day long. Thank you, sister, so-and-so. So -and -so. It created something among us. When we outsource, folk do it for us, because that's their contracted job. But I don't feel the love in the food. Do you? You get what I'm saying? I mean, I'm not trying to take us back. Don't, don't y'all shoot me. I'm not trying to take us back. Although you could go back if you want to. But anyway, I'm just saying. But I felt the love. You know what I mean? When we used to have plays in church, when I was growing up, a little boy, and we had to do Easter plays. Everybody know about them Easter plays. And you had to wear costumes. We didn't buy no costumes. Uh, Miss so-and-so and Miss so-and-so and Miss so-and-so, they all made them costumes. Now, I understand now that day is gone. I got it. I got it. So now we go out to the store and buy it. But when we kept it in-house... This is a deeper subject, and I got to let y'all go because I know this is going to run me to another thing. We kept it in house. We circulated revenue. <laughs> See, when you circulate revenue, you become economically empowered. So y'all, y'all ain't, they're not getting it, Mary. They're not getting it. When you circulate among yourselves, you become economically empowered to be able to do everything that you need to do. It may, it, look, it may have taken us time to build uh, the new kitchen. Five years. And I know I'm going back. And yeah, we sold chicken dinners once a month. But at the end of them five years, you could hear the construction workers in the new kitchen without it being alone. Y'all ain't hearing me. We pay for it. Do you get what I'm saying? 
that creates encouragement. All right, I'm done.